If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Nomads have altered the course of human history in many ways, but their stories are often overlooked because nomadic societies didn't tend to leave a record. Historian and travel writer Anthony Satin seeks to rectify that in his new book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. David Musgrove spoke to Anthony and began by asking him about the inspirations behind his book. The idea for the book came about through um, having spent a lot of time in North Africa and the Middle East, uh, where nomads are part of the landscape and part of every, everyday conversation, because they are still, for instance, in, in Egypt, there are still Bedouin, and, and you're very much aware of them. 
come back into Western Europe, and uh, nomads are not part of the conversation. They're not part of part of everybody's everyday. And then I began to think about how nomads fit into our history and the history that I was taught. And um, and they're simply not there, or if they are there, they are there as the destroyers. As you know, there are, there are three nom- famous nomads you can name check from history. There are Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, and Tamerlane, and they are the world's great destroyers. And there was a line from um, an Oxford historian uh, that history is a path picked through ruins. And um, if you accept that as a description of history, then it glorifies people who build monuments and excludes uh, nomads, unless, of course, they're the people who create the ruins. And I just thought that's not my understanding, not my experience of the, the, the countries I've lived in for much of my adult life. And I looked around for somebody who might have corrected the balance and the book wasn't there. And so I thought I would write one. (laughs) So how do we define nomad? What is the definition of the word? Well, the word comes from, it has very, very, very early Indo-European roots, which means it's sort of, you know, it's lost in the the dawn of time. But uh, it, it means originally somebody going in search of pasture uh, and therefore a herder. Um, And it goes right back to the very early days of the the split, the agricultural revolution between um, farmers who who settled and grew crops and those who went, uh, had to move around in search of pasture for their herds. So that's, that's the basic definition of a nomad, somebody who has animals that need to be fed. Okay, so let's go right back to that split that you just referenced. There, it's kind of the the uh, the, the dichotomy between the, uh, uh, the the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, the hunter gatherer societies and the settled farming societies, which was um, several thousand years ago. Um, when do we first start to see signs of of nomadic societies making a mark on the landscapes that they move through? Well, this is a fascinating part of archaeology at the moment, ancient history. Um, 9,500 BC, um, in, in, again in Turkey, near the Syrian border, there's a place called Gobekli Tepe, which was uh, discovered in the 90s. Well, it was known before, but it was recognised for what it is in the 1990s. It's, um, it, it's a, a series of T-shaped pillars, um, about a dozen put in a circle with two larger ones in the middle. And the the pillars are about 10 to 12 feet high, and they are carved out of limestone. This is 7,000 years before the pyramids or the Stonehenge that we have now. Um, So it's incredibly early in terms of of, of building monuments. And um, it it was built by hunter-gatherers, by people who were passing by. It's a sacred site. And we can't quite recover exactly what it was that they saw in the landscape that was worth doing this. But uh, initially, it was a place for a, a, um, some sort of ritual that was performed maybe once or twice a year when these people were passing by. But uh, I, I think in the act of building this site, um, they must have hunted and grazed everything that could be eaten in the landscape, and they began to um, domesticate wheat. So the first train of domesticated wheat w- was discovered about 25 miles from Gobekli Tepe. And since the, the 90s, a couple of other places, that same period from about 9,000, 9,500 BC have been found in that area. So this is a place where, where you can say the, the agricultural revolution or, or Neolithic revolution begins. Um, although I think it's more of an evolution because it happens over uh, hundreds, perhaps a thousand years. So Gobekli Tepe, um, it's, it's not a, a name that sort of trips off the tongue in terms of archaeological sites of, of fame, is it? Um, 
has it been overlooked? Has it recently been discovered? Why, why don't we know more about it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, when I, when I first went there, which was about uh, 10 years ago, um, it was discovered by a German uh, called Klaus Schmidt, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, but And it had been, as I said, it had been recognised as an ancient site before. But uh, all that was showing on the ground were literally the tops of these of these uh, 10, 12 feet high columns. So they look, just look like block, building blocks in the ground. But it was Schmidt who recognised, because there were flints found there, which were not native to that area, that somebody had been cutting stone there. He was an expert in Neolithic tools. Um, and so he started excavating. And there's still there's lots and lots of stone circles in that area, um, on that hillside. Um, and... Uh, when I, I did an interview with him in London in uh, 2014, 15, 2014, and uh, nobody had heard of Gobekli Tepe. And, but I think about three years ago, the Turkish government, if you flew into Istanbul, there was a huge displays in Istanbul airport, the year of Gobekli Tepe. And they have now, when I first went there, there was a man um, who I think was the, the man who discovered the site, the, the, uh, the Kurdish herder. Um, who had told Klaus Schmidt about about the site, and uh, he was living in a in a hut on the site as the as the guardian. Now the whole site has been you know, there's a visitors center. You can't drive anywhere near it. There's a little there are sort of electric uh, trains that take you up up to the site. The whole thing has been covered over. Loads of books have been written about it. So uh, and and it has been described as the most important. Um, archaeological site in the world at the moment because there's still so much to to discover um because as they dig down through the through the layers um because most of these stone circles were covered during the 1500 years that, that the site was used and as they dig down they find more and more things about the people because we don't know who they were um we don't know we don't know why they stopped there we don't know where they came from and we don't know where they went Okay, so that takes us sort of right back to the to the start of the story, I guess. Um, an interesting place that that we should all know uh, a bit more about. Um, in your intro, you talked about how basically when we when we think about nomadic societies, we tend to think of them in a fairly negative way as as, as conquerors and and, um, and and barbarians in a sense. How how did um, hunter gatherers, um, early nomads, coexist with the with the first settled societies? D- does does that sort of idea go right back to to the foundational stones of this story? It absolutely does. Um, I mean, the most famous uh, narrative about about the um, hunt about nomads and settled is is in the Bible. It's Cain and Abel, um, which reflects, I, I think, is, is some sort of reflection of what happened um, in that period of Gobekli Tepe. But uh, but that's a negative one. Again, it's it's a, a associated with violence. It's where you know it's where one of it's the first fratricide that we know of. It's where one of the brothers kills the other. But for most of human history, I mean, for most of the last twelve thousand years, and this is particularly the case early on, um, there's absolute uh, mutual dependence between nomads and settled. Um, They need each other. Nomads, the nomadic stock, um, and and literally sort of herds, but also their value, is time sensitive. You need to sell it when you can sell it. You you also need to sell it when the grazing starts running out or else your animals are going to start dropping. Um, and uh, and nomads at the same time became incle- increasingly dependent on things that settled people produced, and that's the story the whole way through history up until 
you know, I mean, even in Europe up until the certainly the 16th, 17th century. I mean, we we were we transhumance still goes on in Europe today, but uh, but we were very much dependent on them until until well into our, you know modern times. And you know, there's there are great stories that come out of say um, ancient Sumer, you know, Iraq, Mesopotamian plain, where. Um, Sumerian farmers are uh, absolutely dependent on nomads arriving at just the right the moment after the harvest because the, the herds will then eat graze on the stubble. And while they're grazing, they're then fertilizing the ground with their droppings. And then they need to go away at just the right moment as well. And there's this sort of this happy balance between, between the two. The problem we have is that uh, nomads tend, have tended not to write down their stories. So what we know about nomads has been written by settled people. And most of what was recorded was negative. It was, it was uh, written down in times of conflict. And so, you know, they're, they're, which is why we have this sense that nomads are in through history have always been violent, because very often it's a time when they're protesting. And for instance, um, Attila the Hun, um, you know, who, who is sort of one of the one of the main reasons why the Western Roman Empire collapsed uh, is the movement of the Huns and the, and the, the defeat of the Roman Roman armies. Attila the Hun didn't move in, in on the, on onto Rome because he wanted to conquer, conquer Rome because that wasn't his intention. He 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 needed uh, markets and nomads always needed markets and the Romans were kept on closing. Um, the the markets and closing the borders to free free movements of nomads and their stock, and um, it, it, it that plays out through uh, ancient Persia, ancient Greece, and the whole way through with with Egypt as well, the whole way through the ancient world. So long as the borders are open, so long as the nomads can come and go, they don't need to fight, they don't need to uh, to conquer. But it's only when they they're denied access. It's the same with the Han Chinese with a, a tribe called the Xiongnu. Uh, the Chinese eventually built the Great Wall, the initial Great Wall, to try and keep them out. But um, the eventual settlement of that was an agreement that they would have um, markets where they could trade. It, it's, it's, as I said, fr- from the beginning of time, it's been mutual dependence. Um, maybe you mentioned Attila the Hun there, maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, can you just remind us very quickly the story of Attila the Hun? What, what period was, was Attila um, alive in? Attila the Hun was 400s AD, um, and he uh, he was probably born in Hungary. I mean, a huge amount of him uh, of his story is is again sort of lost in 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 mists of time, including where he was buried. Um, his his grave was apparently an extraordinary place, but no one has managed to find it. Um, there, the latest thought is maybe it was in the middle of a river somewhere, but he. Um, the Huns had come, um, as had the the Goths and and many many other tribes out of uh, from the east and initially for, along with the Turkic tribes, off the the great steppes that run between Hungary and and Man- and China, and uh, at times of warming when the steppes began to dry up, or um, after a very successful period for nomads when the um, when the herds had grown and the tribes had grown, there would be conflict between the different tribes and the weaker tribes would get pushed west. And, um, and that's what happened with, with, the, with the Goths who arrived before the Huns. The Huns had pushed them across, across the Danube River. The, the Roman a- emperor had decided to give them, um, give them territory and, and welcome them into the country. But then the, the Huns came along as well. And 
Um, it was a time of weakness on the part of the Romans. And in the end, you have the Roman emperor um, agreeing to, to huge tribute, paying huge tributes to um, Attila and, and his forces to keep them off the Roman, uh, out of Roman cities. And uh, there's a famous story from, um, uh, from one of the Roman ambassadors, Priscus, who goes to visit Attila. Um, and, and he, you know, the, the image that most Roman writers had given us of the Huns and other nomads was of barbarians. And, uh, and here is uh, Priscus actually full of admiration for the way that Attila, you know, runs his court. He, he lives in a wooden house, um, which can be dismantled and moved. Uh, the only solid structure which couldn't be moved was the bathhouse he had built, that Attila built for one of his wives. And, you know, and he's a man who's, who's shown in public sort of being very generous towards his wives, who were very important in, in, in the running of his, of his territories and to his children. And he's a humble man. Everybody else eats off gold and silver plates. He still eats off his wooden plate. Everybody else has fancy food. He likes plain grilled meat. And, and you get this sense of, of a man whose, whose um, origins and whose traditions come from another place off the, off the Pontic Caspian steppes, off this great um, steppe land, which you couldn't be farmed, but is brilliant for, for nomads, and had found himself in the West. And one of the things that Priscus notices is that although Attila had conquered all sorts of extraordinary and important cities, he didn't want to live in them. He could have had his choice of any number of palaces that he captured from the Romans, but he rather live in his in his tent. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But that nomadic energy is no longer able to create or to renew um, a, a culture or civilization once you have cannon, because it's not enough at that point to be able to ride a horse really well and, and use your bow and arrow, and, uh, because they're going to kill you before you get, before you get within rain. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. 
So um, you just sort of talked quite a lot about Eurasian steppes there, and you mentioned just then uh, couldn't be farmed, but was ideal for nomads. So is that is is you know uh, the Eurasian steppes? We we think of the place kind of where where nomadic societies, the great nomadic cultures, kind of appear from. Um, you mentioned Attila with Genghis, Tamerlane, all all sort of from that from from those steppes. Um, is it is the geography the sole reason why that's the place where the nomadic societies grow up? Yes, and and you know there, there's a movement after the, the the Neolithic split that we mentioned that happens you know begins to happen about about eleven thousand years ago that um, f- you know farmers need um, need easily watered uh, fertile land nomads don't nomads just need to be able to move from one place to another and so if you look around the world today where there are nomads it's on and land that is difficult to farm so for instance much of iran there's still a lot of nomads living in iran because much of the country is simply not suitable for farming um, for agriculture and the same with uh, in north africa the the sahel the edge of the sahara you can't grow crops there but it's very good for for herds and it it was always like that and but you have between um, between Hungary and uh, and what is now the the Great Wall of China, uh, this sort of six thousand mile step corridor, and in the middle is uh, there's a mountain range in Kazakhstan, the Altai Mountains, um, which was sort of divide um, two areas of the steppes, and also uh, in the east it, the land becomes is higher and becomes the 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 weather is much harder, so the summers are much hotter, the winters are much much colder, so that but you have the Mongolian plateau, where obviously the, Mo- the great Mongol em- empires rose from, and there's an idea that uh, between the Romans, say bet- from about the second century BC to the second century AD, between the Romans and the Chinese, you have this vast territory, um, and in the in the west of it, you have this uh, tribe called the Scythians, among others, and in the east, you have this tribe called the Xiongnu. And there is a suggestion that these two tribes, uh, we know about the Western ones from Herodotus and the Eastern ones from the Grand Historian of China, they seem to be very, very similar people with living in very similar ways. And what we know of them, apart from the, the written records of outsiders, is what they've left us in their burials. And the burials in the East and the West have very similar objects. They're all wearing, they're all wearing Chinese silk. They're all um, sitting on Persian carpets. They're all wearing jewellery from, gold jewellery from, um, from Europe. And the suge- there's a, there is a very viable suggestion that there was an empire that existed between the Han China and the Roman Empire that was actually larger than both, but it was nomadic. So they didn't build this extraordinary monuments, apart from their funeral funeral mounds, but they maintained an empire that might have run for four or five hundred years. So that is a a fascinating little hypothesis, isn't it? To, to suggest that there's there's a, another great civilization there that we're we're completely blind to in a way, which I suppose is 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 the underlying underlying text of, of your book and the reason why why you've written it. So so let's just go back to to that a bit. So. Um, You've you've said several times that you know we tend to view nomadic societies from from our perspective, from our settled Western perspective, in a negative way. In part because of these uh, these these nomadic societies that come out from the steppes, particularly the Mongols, as you mentioned, uh, which caused a lot of damage, attacked a lot of settled societies, and were obviously then viewed with fear and and suspicion and and and, and outright hatred. I guess um, is that is that the is that the big problem here in terms of uh, we don't understand them properly as a consequence of that. 
Exactly that. We don't understand them properly. And we have tended just to focus on this one side of, of their character, which is of violence. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to be an apologist for um, for the Mongol headcount. I mean, it was extraordinary. Uh, Genghis Khan, but even more Tamerlane, you know, these huge pyramids of skulls outside cities like Baghdad. But when you look at the details of it, firstly, I, I mean, I, and I'll stress, I'm not an apologist for Mongol violence, but... Um, the the chronicles, of, for instance, of the destruction of Baghdad talk about the, the entire city having been devastated. And yet you re- read 10 years later, the city is, again, one of the great commercial centres in the world. And you think, OK, well, they can't have completely destroyed the place and they can't have killed everybody. So there was an exaggeration on the part of the chronicler who was one of the victims of this violence. Um, and But the other thing to note about it is that this... And this again is a problem with with uh, with history, the history we have uh, about nomads. It stresses the violence. It doesn't play up um, very often the other side of nomad culture, which is the way that they have flourished the world's world's culture, but um, in Eurasia in particular, um, but also in Africa actually, and in in North and South America, and certainly in Australia. I mean, this. But let's just stick with the Mongols. If you think about um, the movement of ideas, uh, beliefs, and goods between e- between East and West, and we, we we we're all familiar with this term of the Silk Roads, but along it, uh, in this period of, of the Mongol ascendancy, uh, you have the Pax Mongoliana in the same way that you had Pax Romana. You have the the Mongol peace because the emperor is so strong, whether it's uh, a Genghis or a Timur or one of their one one of the other many many others, that it was said you could walk uh, from one side of of the empire, which is therefore up to the Chinese border and and right over into the Middle East, you could walk from one end to the other as a girl with a golden bowl on your head without fearing either assault or or theft and you know across the we know about the roman the great ancient roman roads with the post houses and whatever the mongols had exactly the same thing with you if you had the right token at a mongol post house you got to sleep in silk sheets and you got fed this royal banquet and things like that we never hear about that side and along this these corridors um because they were very keen to I stressed at the beginning of this talk the importance of open markets. So when you have a when you have a nomad empire, it's absolutely essential that trade should flow easily. They had very very low tax uh, tax tariffs. Um, it didn't matter whether you were a Mongol or a Christian or a, a sky worshipper or whoever it was. The freedom of conscience. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman. You could travel, and and along this came um, a, a, well all of the elements of the European Renaissance. Um, you have in in 1600s the the um, English philosopher Bacon talking about the three great things that had come from the East that had shaped, allowed the West to to shape itself, and it's the, the paper, the printing uh, out of which comes the printing press, uh, the compass, and gunpowder, and all three are carried from China into Europe by by Mongols. So that's that's a that's a pretty big claim there isn't it to be to be suggesting that the renaissance doesn't happen without the impact and the influence of 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 the mongols it well i would i would let me just actually let me just clarify that a little bit the european renaissance would not have happened the way it happened 
and when it happened, without there having already been a Mongol renaissance, without the flourishing of these great cities like Samarkand and Bukhara, uh, without, you know, without the um, focus on, on scholarship, uh, astrology, astronomy, which is very important to, for the making of decisions and plans um, for, for Mongols. And, um, and, and other sciences as well. They all flourish under the Mongols as they did under the Arabs during what we call our Dark Ages. This is sort of a time of brilliance in, in Asia. Um, and it's the nomads who allow the, um, the, well, the, the, the treasures of, of, of that period, of that early flourishing, to, to arrive in Europe along with the Black Death, it must be said, which is also absolutely key in, the crea- in the, creating the social circumstances for the, for the European Renaissance. Um, and without all of those elements, it, we would not have had a European Renaissance when we had it in the way we had it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, <laughs> that nuance. Um, so so you, you flagged up there some of the sort of the cultural and, and technological um, contributions, I guess, that, that, that the nomadic societies have made, which have perhaps been overlooked. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure they have. Um, and, you, and you stressed um, rightly that you, you're not an apologist for sort of the violence that was also in those societies. Is there a risk that kind of, uh, that we start to push the lever too far towards saying that, that these nomadic societies were some sort of utopian place? Um, um, we've, and and we we don't we don't remember the, the violence that uh, that also existed in those societies. I think well, no, I think those those images of of uh, of nomad violence are never going to go away. I mean, it's 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 there up until into our own times. A sort of suspicion of who these people are. But I I think we're living through such an interesting time in in the writing of history and the telling of history um, because there's a sense of you know of of the world that was put into place by the age of reason and the age of enlightenment and then fueled by the industrial revolution is is in difficulties. It may well be coming to an end. Uh, it's only a couple of years ago that uh, the, President Macron in Paris said, we need a new social contract. Um, and while thinking about this, you know, if, if, the, if the old settled world that came out of the Renaissance is, 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 is in the process of morphing into something else, well, maybe nomads have a very good place in it. And in the, in the considering of who we're going to become, it's very important for us to know who we were. And that's why it's very important, for instance, to be having new histories that write, write in the role of women, for instance. And obviously, you know, the, we have, we have lots of histories coming out now, which, which plays up the role of black people in, in, in the shaping of, of our modern world. And these are very important. And I think we need to have nomads in there as well. So can we just dip back into that a, a bit more? Because I'd really like to, to hear from you a bit more about how nomads and nomadic societies were effectively written out of our histories um, in, the, in the past few hundred years. And, and there's a, you've got a really good little story about how the word didn't even feature in, in the first English dictionary. So tell us a bit, bit about that. Yeah, well, Dr. Johnson, when he came to compile his dictionary in the, in the 18th century, didn't think it was a, a it wasn't a current word. Um, it, it's simply in, in England. And even though he, where, where Johnson came, Dr. Johnson came from, Litchfield, they, they, I, I, I went back into the records and there were definitely transhumans, therefore, um, nomadic farmers moving, uh, herders moving their, their, sheep and whatever up and down the hills. Um, he didn't think that the word nomad was current in English at that time. And it, it's to do with those three things, three main things that I said had come over most recently from uh, from the East, and that's particularly gunpowder. Um, that And Europeans are very good at, at 
taking things that came from the East and A, scaling them up and B, weaponizing them. And, you know, gunpowder initially is for fireworks, for scaring devils in in Chinese ceremonies and things like that. But the Europeans quickly realized that you can make some great weapons with this. And faced with... um, I write a lot about uh, Ibn Khaldun, the, the 14th century Arab philosopher who has the idea of the rise and who, who is the first to write uh, extensively about the rise and fall of empires. And, and the empires he's looking at from the Arabs on are all flourished by nomadic energy. But that nomadic energy is no longer able to create or to renew um, a, a culture or civilization once you have cannon, because it's not enough at that point to be able to ride a horse really well and, and use your bow and arrow, and, uh, because they're going to kill you before you get, before you get within range. And, and effectively, that's what happens. And if you think about you know, the last great British uh, cavalry charge, the, the charge of the Light Brigade, is exactly that, the inability to fight on horseback faced with big cannon. So nomads were, from, from, the, from that period, from the 1600s onwards, were on the way out. And although there are new nomad empires created in that time, I mean, the, the Ottomans and the, and the Safavids in, in Persia, Iran, for instance, and Babur in, in the Mughals in India, they're effectively, they've come out of nomad, nomad tradition, but they are nomad, no longer nomadic themselves. They, in a way, they're post-nomadic empires. And so by the, by the 18th century, this word and these people are, are on the way out. And at the same time, um, you get the beginning of people be- beginning to get nostalgic and perhaps a little anxious about the loss of nomads and nomadism. It begins to represent a sort of freedom um, that that people felt they were losing in a settled industrial society. Um, the idea that you could just drift wherever you wanted, which of course has very rarely been um, sort of the core principle of nomadism. Most nomads move between fixed places between their summer and their winter pasture. But in particularly in the European romantic idea, it becomes, you know, it becomes this very important uh, sort of metaphor for freedom um, and unbridled passion, if you think of Valentino and in, in um, the Sheikh. And, you know, all the, all the sort of... Um, if you think of how... Um, Bruce Chatwin, for instance, who wrote a, his first book was about nomads. is very he has a very very romantic view on on what nomads um, how nomads live, and it is true. Uh, we we have a, a great letter from Benjamin Franklin in the 1750s, 1760s, founding father of the of the United States, who can't understand why um, Native Americans. Who, who live what he calls a wandering life, wouldn't rather live in a settlement and enjoy the benefits of arts and science. And he also can't understand why um, settlers who'd been captured by Native Americans and then brought back to the settlement want to go back out into the wild. He simply can't understand it. But a lot of those people, as with people like um, Thoreau, the great American nature writer in, in the early 19th century, have a sense of the, the loss of something important in the world. And in a way, it's that that I'm trying to tap, tap into here and now in our time. We, there are still millions of nomads in the world but um, the the settled population has so exploded that they've become increasingly irrelevant and increasingly endangered. And I, I thought, therefore, it was time, as I said, in this period of revision of history, to try and put them back on a map. 
Brilliant. You've um, you've happily um, uh, sort of gone into my next question, which was, I was going to say. Um, you've, you, we've talked a lot about Eurasia, about the steps, um, and, and, and that's a big topic of your book as well. What happened there? Obviously, the story of nomadism um, is global. You mentioned Native Americans in North America. I assume that similar themes would would play out across the globe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and there is a reappraisal of what of what was done. I mean, there, there's a nice story I tell, for instance, about well, not nice if you're Aboriginal, um, about Captain Cook and and Joseph Banks arriving in Botany Bay in Australia for the first time, um, and not understanding the problem that they're creating for native people because they're walking on sacred space and you can't just walk into it. Um, and so the natives are not happy. With, with them being there and throw spears at them and then and then get shot at in return and it's the same it's this, it plays out i mean tragically and terribly across the united states um you know bit by bit the, this idea among the settlers among the the americans the the settler americans of a manifest destiny where god gave them the entirety of the continent and they must push westwards it's only in the last few years that the governor of california has has publicly recognized that and you said this very word that what was done to the native americans in california for instance was a genocide um and they weren't all nomads it must be said but there were many of them were nomadic they did live a nomadic life many of them did move up and down the huge this huge territory from almost in the, the down by the gulf of mexico up into what's now Canada uh, along the prairies in as as the bison herds moved up and down so the um so the native americans would do as well and um this inevitable uh, destruction of these people by um those who have more sophisticated weapons and and i guess that by by definition they uh, a nomadic society versus a settled society would have a different perception of the land of concepts of land ownership which is which is sort of bound to lead to some sort of conflict yes and and they also have a very very different sense of um of their place in the natural world and i think if we have something to learn from them today this is this is one of the things um it, we it's very easy when you live in a city um uh, think about the heat wave we've just been through to wish that you had air conditioning and you could be burning up electricity and to sit in the car with the air gone on and, and do everything else like that um it's much harder to do that when you are a nomad living um, in nature, in the natural world, and on the move in it, because it's impossible to escape the fact that you are entirely dependent on it, and it is depend it is affected by what you do, and and p- part of my argument in this book, in this latter part of the book, is that uh, what settled society and particularly urban society has allowed people to do is to forget um, that what we do has a consequence in the natural world and that that will come back to bite us as it appears it is doing these days with these huge heat waves and fires you know on the edge of london and you know london is burning um and maybe now the science has been there for a long time but maybe now we'll we'll pay more attention to it but uh nomads know all that sort of thing and they know uh they know the limits of what they can do and in in you know they know the limits of how much they can graze they know the limits of what they of how many trees they can cut down that sort of thing which we um driven by dr- driven by uh, politicians and um big corporations seem to have lost sight of <laughs> 
That was Anthony Satin. His book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.